So 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, but for the sake of context, we're going to begin reading in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you into this portion of your word, I pray, Father, that you would deal with us according to your grace. Not according to our sins, but according to your grace and your steadfast love and the multitude of your tender mercies in Christ. It's in his righteousness and his name that we come before you asking for good, asking for blessing. I pray, Father, that if there is one here who does not have eternal life, you would grant it to them. You would give to them faith and repentance for salvation. For all those who do have eternal life, who believe in the name of your son and have this gift, I pray that they would know without a doubt that they have it. And I pray that we all would know exactly what we have. And I pray that we would glory in this gift and more glory in you. So, Father, to this end, we need your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit is the truth. It is the Spirit who testifies to your Son. And we need him, Father, so that we can, uh, we can receive your son. So pour out upon us your spirit. May we experience his fullness so that we can see Jesus and in his name worship you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. For any number of reasons in my experience, I I have found that believers, true believers, will experience at some point in their Christian life doubt about their salvation for any number of reasons. Perhaps they may be more temperamentally inclined to fear. Perhaps they may be uh, ignorant of security in Jesus Or perhaps in a moment, their great sin of that moment appears to them greater than God's great grace. But for any number of reasons, I think that most true believers will experience at some point in their lives doubt about their salvation. Some of those people will think that that's a normal condition, that this is to be expected, and because they 
they, they, they actually learn to live with that feeling of insecurity. But most times that believers go through this period of doubt, they will feel deep within themselves the crisis of soul that it is. Because there is a massive difference in personal well-being, in, in peace and joy and confidence. There is a massive difference between having eternal life and knowing that you have it. Picture a little old lady living in a, a broken down house, sickly thin, scraping together every day her, her meager means just to make ends meet, crying herself to sleep every night with her worries and being worth a million dollars. There's a massive difference between being a millionaire, having a million dollars, and knowing that you have it. There have been cases where people have not realized their wealth, how it has accumulated through interest or wealth they've had, they've received uh, through inheritance and have died worrying about their financial security or died living a, a miserly life. That's a shame. That, that's a shame. How much more of it, how much more of a shame is it if a believer does not know the gift that they have securely in Jesus Christ? A believer who is absolutely secure in Christ, who worries, who is frightened, sometimes is, gets actually into depression, not knowing if they are secure in Christ when in fact they truly are. So from this one short verse at the back end of this letter, I have two aims for you today. First of all, if you have eternal life truly, I want you to know you have it confidently. Number two, I not only want you to know that you have it, I want you to know what you have in it and to glory in that. Okay? So we are going to take this verse, verse 13 of chapter 5, clause by clause here. We'll start with the first. He says, I write these things to you. I'm going to skip a portion. For this purpose, I write these things to you that you may know. We have been talking about this ever since we started this letter. Why did God have John write this letter to the churches? He wrote to these believers so that they would be assured of what they know in the gospel. And in the face of many threats and deceptions from false teachers who were assaulting them with false teaching, he wrote so that they would abide in the same. So he wants them to be assured of what they know in the gospel, and he wants them to abide in the same. See, just to remind you of uh, more of the the background, the setting of this letter, these proto-Gnostic apostate false teachers who claimed inside gnosis, who claimed inside knowledge of the spiritual mysteries, had left the church, but not to leave it alone, they had left the church to return with the assault of their false teaching. And so great was this assault that many in the church were shaken with doubt. They didn't know who actually knew. Who knows the truth? Do they know the truth or do we? Who truly knows God? Do they know God or do we know God? And so they were shaken with doubt. John says, 
you know. Now, they didn't know that they knew, but John says over and over again, some three dozen times in this letter, you are the ones who know. So they knew, but they needed to be assured that they knew. So look at, that might sound confusing, but look at verse 15. John says, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's not just the conclusion of the letter. That's from chapter 2 forward. John wants these believers to know that they know. The false teachers, again, proto-Gnostics. Gnosticism would become a full-blown theology in the second century. that Gnostic term is from gnosis, meaning knowledge. So they were saying, we know the truth. You think you know God? We know God. And to assure these believers, to reinforce them, to encourage them, John was saying, you're the ones who know. You can see from our place in this letter that John saves this great purpose statement, oddly enough, for the back end of the letter. Usually when someone writes, they'll, they'll start with their thesis or their purpose statement. John saves his for the back. Again, he says, I want you to look down at it as I read. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, saving his purpose statement for the back end of the letter makes a pretty interesting comparison, I think, to what he does in his gospel. This is John's epistle, 23rd book of the New Testament. In his gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament, he also saves his very clear purpose statement for the back end. I'm going to read that, but I want you still to be looking down at 1 John 5.13, okay? So I'm reading John 20, verse 31. John 20, 31, John wrote this. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wrote in his gospel, fourth book of the New Testament, so that people would believe in Jesus, and believing, have life. Now in his letter, John is writing so that those who do believe may know that they have that life, may rest assured that they have it. John wants us to know we have eternal life. I I just have to stop and think about how John's heart for the church is just simply reflective of the heart of God. God could have given us eternal life and let us go on fearing insecurity in doubts and fears and so on. But God's heart for his own is this. He wants you not only to have eternal life, he wants you to know that you have it. This is reflective of the heart of God, and it's beautiful. Now, who is to know? Who who is this assurance for? John makes that clear. This is our second clause that we're going to concentrate on. 
He writes to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Who may have assurance? Those who believe in the name of the Son of God. I want us to note two things here. First of all, I want you to note the tense of faith. And second, I want you to note the object of faith. First, the tense of faith is present tense. Assurance of eternal life, knowing that we have eternal life, is for those who presently believe in the name of the Son of God. Assurance of salvation is not for those who merely claim some past decision or who merely claim a past commitment, who professed faith in Jesus and checked into the church for a while and then checked out. Assurance in the word of God is given to those who present tense believe in the name of the Son of God. Sometimes I feel like we as a, as a church are guilty of giving more assurance of salvation to people then the word of God gives assurance of salvation. Because we assure those who are not living for him, who have no evidence of being born of God in their lives, and who don't participate in the church in any form, that they are truly right with God. And that is more assurance for them than the word of God itself gives. So let's be careful, not only for honestly dealing with the word of God, but for our For them, for the sake of their souls, let us not give more assurance to those who do not live for Jesus than what the word of God gives. Second, not only note that the tense of faith is present, note that assurance is for those whose object of faith is Jesus. It is for those who believe now in the name of the Son of God. What is it to believe in the name of the Son of God? To believe in His name is to rest all your faith in all of Him. In John chapter 1, verse 12, the apostle said, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So to believe in his name is not to believe that the name of the Son of God is J-E-S-U-S. To believe in his name is to believe in him. And to believe him, to believe in him is to receive him. What hope you have to be right with God, stake all upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone. Trust in him that although he is the divine Son of God, He came in the flesh for us and our salvation. He lived for us sinlessly without any sin chargeable to him. And he died for us with all of our sin charged to his account. He lived for us. He died for us. He was buried for us. And he rose for us. Believe in him. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Because we are united to him. We will be raised with him. So to believe in his name is to believe in him. And to believe in him is to receive him. And to receive him is to have him. In 1 John 5.12 again, which we read a moment ago, John said, whoever has the son has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So you believe in His name, you believe in Him. You believe in Him, you receive Him. If you receive Him, you have Him. And if you have Him, the promise of God is that you have eternal life. Now we know from the rest of this letter that John also gives us a series of tests looking for evidences that we have been born of God. And he said that we must believe in the name of the Son of God continuously. We must obey His commandments continuously. And we must love His people continuously. As evidence that we have been born of God. That is not to say that we will be perfect. Not in our faith. Not in our obedience. Not in our love. We will not be perfect. By no stretch. We know that. I just don't want there to be any misunderstanding out there about that truth. But whatever faith you have to be right with God, rest all in Jesus. And as a consequence of faith in Him, the gift of the Holy Spirit and new life in Him, we will be transformed to continually live in obedience to Him and continually love His people. Those are the evidences of being born of God. John writes again, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to know. If you have eternal life truly, I want you to know that you have it confidently. God wants you to know it. God does not want His people to be in doubt about it. I want you to know that you have it, and I want you to know what you have in it. And I'm, God has wired me this way. I'm really desperate for this. And this is kind of, this is a quirk in my personality, which has strengths and it has weaknesses. I want people to enjoy what they have. I want them, if they have something wonderful, I want them to know what it is they have, that it is truly wonderful. Just the other day, okay, on the 4th of July, Friday, I, I walked back down to the house. I was spending the bulk of the day in the office preparing for this message. But at about 11, Shree called and she told me that she smelled something burning in the house and it was getting worse and worse. So I left the office. I'm on my way home and I see Brianne waving me off. And then Shree comes out the door. She's waving me off too. Obviously, they've figured out the source of the smell. It was a little... The, uh, the plastic part of a knife was getting burned in the dishwasher. It had fallen down. Anyway, everything had, was okay, but I was outside, and it was nice. And so I just I continued going home, got under the, the shade of our oak trees down there, and it was just a cool breeze on the 4th of July in North Louisiana. This is my 10th, 4th of July, by far the nicest 4th of July that I can remember. So I'm just standing there feeling this soft breeze on the 4th of July in North Louisiana. And uh, talking to Sheree, and, and one of my daughters was there. And after that uh, conversation, at the end, I said to uh, my daughter, um, man, this is awesome. <laughs> it feels so good. It's awesome. And, and she looked up at me and she said, it is? And I was like, yes, yes it is. You you just don't have any idea how awesome this is. She knew that we had good weather, but she didn't understand what it means to have 
really good weather on the 4th of July in North Louisiana. And it just, that kind of thing drives me crazy. You have eternal life. You have it. I want you to know what you have in it. And I'm desperate for that. Sometimes people just have a hard time understanding what wealth they have come into. Let, Let me just drop a scenario, okay? Let's say that I have come into some really big money from an uncle, his inheritance, uh, because obviously he died. And so I'm talking with this lawyer who's trying to explain to me what kind of wealth I've come into, and I'm not getting him at all. I'm just standing there completely unmoved as he goes on and on very excitedly about all this money, this wealth that I have in equity and stocks and just like... Okay, I can see you're excited, man, but I'm not getting you. I don't speak your language. I I know I should know this language a little bit better, but I don't speak in those terms. Now, he's very eager for me to understand what kind of wealth I have now. He's very excited about it, especially because he's going to get a cut. But he he wants me to know, and so he's just sitting there. He stops. He says, okay, how can I put this? All right. Have you heard of Bill Gates. Bill Gates? You you mean the guy who is a billionaire? The guy who once donated a billion dollars to the United Nations, who was for a long time the richest man on the planet? That Bill Gates? Because Bill, it's pretty common. Gates, pretty common. Are you talking about the Bill Gates? He says, yes. That's the kind of wealth that you have come into. If you're going to understand what you have, you need to think in terms of Bill Gates. So here I am as a pastor, and I want my church family, I want Christians to know what kind of wealth that they have come into in this gift of eternal life. And I talk in terms of redemption and justification and adoption and glorification. But especially for a new believer, they're not there yet. That's not their terminology. It's not their language. It needs to be. They need to learn that language because it's God's language, but they're not there yet. And so I stop and I say, okay, how can I put this? Okay, have you heard of Jesus? Well, of course I've heard of Jesus. Okay, if you're going to understand what kind of wealth that you have come into, we need to talk in terms of Jesus who he is, and what he has. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what you have in eternal life. So let's talk about Jesus. First, who he is. John introduces him to us at the beginning of this letter in verses 1 to 4. Would you go back there very quickly? 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. He says, That which was from the beginning. And oh, I love this, but I don't have time to pause over every phrase. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John begins this letter saying, that which was from the beginning we're proclaiming to you. Who is he? He is the eternal life. If you're going to understand what kind of wealth you have come into in this gift, you need to understand, first of all, who Jesus is. He is eternal life personified. The eternal life who was ever with the Father, one with the Father, made manifest to us. Why did he come? It says in 1 John 5, and also in the letter, verses we just read, but this is more of our text today. Why did he come? God is proclaiming him. God is, God is witnessing to his son through his spirit in his word so that we would have him. And so that having him, we would have ourselves his life, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus proclaimed in John 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But what is this life? What is it? In John 17, Jesus prayed. He said that God the Father had given to him authority over all flesh, that he, the Son, should give eternal life to all whom God had given to him. And then he said, and this, verse 3, John 17, 3, you need to know John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is this gift that you and I have? I don't want you to know just that you have it, but what you have in it. What is this life? You have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus himself is the eternal life. So we're not just talking about mere existence life. This life that we have been given is not inhale and exhale life. I'm awake, so I must be alive kind of life. It is not I live for the weekend life. I live a life of adventure kind of life. It's not health and wealth, temporal health and wealth kind of life. It cannot be measured in anything that is seen. It cannot be measured in anything that's in the world, transient, passing away. The only way that we can understand what this life is, is by looking to Jesus and his personal relationship with the Father. It is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. It is not endless days of breath. Eternal life is not endless days of breath. It is endless days of God. That's eternal life. John says, we have it already. When Jesus Christ returns, and we are with him in his glory, and see his glory, just as he asked at the end of John 17, we will live in the first hand sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever. 
Eternal life is not endless breath. It is endless God. Now, I want you to have a, a, a better picture because I, I really believe that John, in his gospel, keeps some... Um, well, let me put it this way. Jesus, in John's gospel, keeps going on and on and on about his relationship with God, the unique nature of his relationship with God, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. John is very different this way, and you can track this from chapter 1 all the way through the end. Jesus can't get over it, his relationship with the Father. So in John chapter 5, he talks about it. John 5, verses 19 and 20 and forward, I'll just read a part of this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing so that the Son will do likewise. Now, I want to back up for a moment just to, I want you to understand this, how beautiful this is. Because earlier I said, you know, if you wanted to know what kind of wealth you have, maybe if you were really rich and you can't speak in terms of equity and stocks and all that kind of thing, let's talk about Bill Gates and what he has. Oh, now I get it. So if we're going to understand what we have now, this wealth that we have come into, by the grace of God in Jesus, this gift of eternal life, we need to understand who Jesus is and what he has. And he describes it here in John 5, other places as well. But Jesus is telling this, not only to defend before his the antagonizers that he has relationship with God uniquely, but he also, he, he wants us not only to believe what he has, but he, he wants us to see that God's children, we have similar. He wants us to understand what we have because of the comparison to what he has. So in John 5, he says the father shows the son all that he is doing so the son can do the same. This is a very familiar image of, of the father-son relationship. Think of Joseph of Nazareth with seven-year-old Jesus of Nazareth and going into the carpenter shop. And Joseph showing Jesus all that carpentry is about. He shows him the tools. He shows him how to hold the tools. He shows him how to make a table just so, make sure that it's square, make sure that it's level. Not only functional, but a beautiful table. And Joseph shows these things to Jesus, not just so that one day it can be Joseph and sons, but he shows him because he loves him. And this is the father-son relationship. It's the mother-daughter relationship. And of course, it can cross genders as well. Um, when, when Marshall was 18 months old, he picked up a bat for the first time. When he was 20 months old, he was looking like a natural. I had him out in front of the house, and the whole he just wanted to bat left. I mean, I bat right, but all he wanted to do was bat left. It was just his instinct. It was so natural to him. And one time, only one time, 
I had to show him how to put his hands. Okay, buddy, if you're going to bat from the left side, not that he knows left from right, but if you're going to bat that way, you have to put your left hand on top and your right hand on the bottom. So I'm pulling him to me, and I'm showing him just how to place his hands before he hammered ball after ball after ball. But that's the father-son relationship. Yesterday, we went to the grocery store in Farmerville, and he was with me, just he and I, him and I, whatever. He, he was with me. And so he's, he says after a while, walk, Daddy. And so he's walking beside me, pushing the cart, and he wants to put everything in the cart. So, you know, a box of cereal. All right, buddy, just throw it in there. Um, I can't remember what we got that was soft. But anyway, so, you know, something that was uh, fragile. All right, you have to be very careful with that one. Just a father showing his son what to do, how to do it, because that's the father-son relationship. So when Jesus is telling us about the father-son relationship, he's not just showing us that it is, but how it is. Not just that the Father showed him, but how the Father has loved him. Now, you're not to think that Jesus is telling us these things so that we can think, oh man, there's something missing with Jesus, a weakness. He lacks. He says, I do what the Father does. That's He's equal with God, equal in power and equal in glory. But the love of this relationship is the Father showing the Son so that the Son can do the same. Now, I want us to go over to John 15. Because I want you to see something that's very parallel to this and very striking for how parallel it is. Again, if you're going to know what you have in eternal life, you need to know what Jesus has. And you see that knowing of father and son in eternity past. The Father showing the Son. You see, it is not just a knowing about. It's not a formal relationship. It is personal. It is intimate. It is infinite closeness from eternity past. That's eternal life. I realize that the phrase, the expression, personal relationship with God has become cliche. Most of the time we use it. We don't use it with the import of the Scriptures. Most of the time that people hear it, they're not hearing it with the power and the magnitude that is there. But that's really what we're talking about. Even though the scriptures itself doesn't use that exact expression. We're talking about personal relationship with God. So in John 15, verses 14 and 15, Jesus addressing his disciples before his arrest says this. John 15, 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Are we the servants of Jesus? Absolutely we are. But we are more. Jesus says his followers are his friends. Now I am pretty tempted right now to speak about the Toronto Blue Jays for the third Sunday in a row. But I won't even mention the Toronto Blue Jays. Picture two students at LSU in Baton Rouge who've been accepted as uh, student workers in the football program. So what is involved in their work is that they they clean the locker room, they, they cater to the whims of the players, and whenever a coach demands it, they go and grab some coffee for them. 
So one day these two students are walking down one of the halls of the football facility. They're passing by the, the office of the head coach, and one of them just goes right in. Nobody's there. Doors open. He just walks right in, goes behind the desk, sits in the head coach's chair, and opens up his playbook and starts to read. The other, We'll call him James. The other student who's outside, he's like, man, what are you, crazy? Somebody, if you get caught... And just then, as he's saying this, who should come around the corner, down the hall, but the head coach himself? He's coming this way. The student on the outside, he's, he quickly pretends that he's busy, and he coughs really loud to let James inside know that James is about to die. And then the coach appears, goes into the office, sees James there, and he says, oh, can you grab me a coffee? I'm going to be late tonight, so I just, you know, like some adrenaline. Get me some coffee. And he sees that he's reading the playbook. And he says, so what do you think? We, we have a new, whole new strategy that we want to implement this year. What is it that they're in? The SEC? Is that right? Okay, so he says, to, to, to stay ahead of the rest of the SEC, we have, just, we have a whole new strategy that we're going to implement. Jim, he says, I have great visions and plans for LSU football. And he goes on and on to this lowly sophomore student about his great vision for LSU football. Now, I know Gary likes that so much better than my Toronto Blue Jays stories. Okay, you happy now? He goes on and on about these visions of what he wants to see for LSU football. Well, Jim comes out of the office and uh, our nameless student outside has to pick his jaw up off the floor And he grabs Jim by the arm and he says, what in the world was that? And Jim has a bit of a smile on his face and he says, our family, my family and the coach's family have been best friends for years. Jim is not just a servant sent to get coffee. Jim is a friend. And because he is a friend, he can be shown the fuller revelation. He can be shown the plan, the end, the telos, the goal, where they want to go and how they want to go about it because he is a friend. Jesus said, you see, a servant just gets simply commanded. You know, go, do, bear this burden, take up this cross, deny yourself. And we're just told to go and do. That's what a servant gets. But a friend gets more. Do you see the parallel between what Jesus has and what we have? They're not the same. But they're parallel. The father shows the son all that he is doing so that the son can do likewise. His showing the son is love. Jesus says that. He says, for the father loves the son. That's why he shows him. Now Jesus is saying, this is how I love you. Because I am showing to you all that I have heard from the father. The showing is love. The showing is relationship. The showing says that there is more than just a command here, a command authoritative relationship. It is a relationship of friendship. God has made us his friends. The showing itself is love. Now, what's so amazing, even not more, what's additionally amazing about this is that the Father shows the Son so that the son can do the same. 
But the Son isn't showing us so that we can do the same, he says in John 15. He says, I'm showing you all that I've heard from the Father. Not so you can do it, but so you can believe it. So you can receive it. That's the gospel. The Son doing for us. And the show, showing us is love. The, the fuller revelation that we have of his plan. He goes on through John 14 to 17 to talk about how he is going to the Father's house. And in going, he will prepare a place for us. And if he prepares a place for us, then he will surely come again so we can be received, so we can be with him where he is. He goes on and on and on about the Father's plans. And it's not only in John's gospel, it's also in the others as well. We know what the end of all things is. Because we are more than servants, God has loved us. We are friends. I'm just giving you a little glimpse of what it means to have eternal life. This is part of what it means to be in personal relationship with the living God. It is knowing Him. It is being loved by Him. God wants you who believe in the name of His Son to know that you have eternal life. And He wants you to know what you have in eternal life. This is so good. Eternal life is one of those umbrella terms in the Bible, kind of like salvation. So much fits under it that uh, more than we know. But what a, what a word from God that we have eternal life. Not we have, not will have one day. We have. Already we have so much in Christ. The fullness awaits but already what a foretaste we have. Knowing what fullness awaits us, what tear is not dried in this promise of eternal life? What wound is not healed? What darkness is not dispelled? What sin is not washed? What slight from the world can shatter us? What distress these days can despair us what death, even our own, can undo us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is there to condemn? God has justified. Who is against us? Christ has died. How can it be that all things aren't good? Won't turn for good. They will. We have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, what can't we trust to you if we already have Christ and life in him and, and, and know that the best is yet to come? What can't we entrust to you there's nothing. We thank you, Father, that you gave your Son, the Son of your love, to us in love, that we might have him, and in having him, have his life, life eternal, knowing you. There is no greater blessing that we could possibly have 
I pray, Father, for those who are gathered here, that they would know that they have it and know better what it is we have in this gift. It, it compels us to awe, to worship, to confidence, and to great joy. Unsurpassed, unrivaled by anything that this world could possibly give to us. We bless your name. You have blessed us. We bless your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen.